Well, we turn in our Bibles once again to the book of Romans as we continue our series on that book and the evening services. And uh, really, uh, what I'm looking at this evening is almost a footnote to what we have done as we have looked at these first few verses. But I think it's an important footnote and something that we shouldn't simply slip by without uh, comment. Maybe a long footnote, but uh, a footnote nonetheless. Romans, the first chapter, we're going to read together the first seven verses. Let's bow before reading. Our Father, you have given to us this word. We live in a secular day and age in which men all around us do not know what to believe, but you have given to us your inerrant word in the whole and in the part, and your spirit has enabled us to see Christ on every page. We pray that this evening we will see something of the glory and wonder of the salvation that we have in Christ, and we pray for the effectual operation work of your spirit in our midst even this evening, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've been looking at these thrilling opening verses of the book of Romans, and we have been looking especially at the gospel of God that is summarized for us in these verses. It's put by Paul very compactly and yet fully, so that we have seen incarnation and resurrection and the Trinity all here within, really, these first four verses of the first chapter of Romans. Now, it's very rare in preaching that I latch on to one word for a sermon, but when it is such an important word, weighted with content, I think that I'm justified in doing so. What is the word upon which we latch this evening? It is this word called, as we see it in verses 6 and 7, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now in verse 6, when he says whom, if you use one version, or including you who are, he's referencing among all the nations or the Gentiles. Those who are the called of Jesus Christ are those who are from the nations, no longer simply Jews, but also Gentiles. That's us, that's you and me, as well as these Romans to whom he is writing. The call of Jesus Christ, this call is never simply an invitation. The Apostle Paul never, anywhere to my memory, 
uses the word call in such a way that it simply references a broad general invitation. Indeed, the end of the call is, according to verse 5, the obedience of faith. The hope that Paul has for the success of his mission in the world is this call of God the Father through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. The whole scheme of the gospel is to honor the name of the Lord. If men are to know God's saving power, it can only be through effectual calling. And so let's think through this call to which the Apostle Paul refers. Now, the way in which we want to think through that call is actually to go back to John's gospel and the sixth chapter, which we referenced this morning when we were speaking of the new birth. In John chapter 6, Jesus gives the backdrop of Paul's teaching. What Paul is saying when he uses the term call is precisely what Jesus means when he references this call in the sixth chapter of John. And so in John chapter 6, we read in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Effectual calling includes the entire process by which God draws us to himself and extends throughout our lives as Christians. So here's the call, and it extends all the way to our heavenly home. The context in which Jesus references this call in John chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000 and the bread of life discourse. To know me, says the Lord Jesus Christ, is to know me as bread from heaven, to eat my flesh and drink my blood, to have a personal real experience of salvation is found only in me, in no one else, in no place else. The word was so offensive, eat my flesh and drink my blood, that the crowd turned away from the Lord Jesus Christ. They had followed him because he had fed them physically. How easy to follow numbers, nickels, and noise. But they were not called. And Jesus gives the bread of life, men walk away. This brings Jesus to the point of addressing men's inability to know him without the call of the Father. And this is why he says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. It's a matter of the inability of the sinner in and of himself to respond to the gospel call. Except the Father draw no sinner will come. John 6, 44 then is Jesus' response to their rejection of him. Nature cannot revolutionize nature. Nature can never rise above nature. We cannot bring ourselves to life because we are dead in trespasses and sins. And the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. And in this chapter, he says it again. In chapter 6 of John's Gospel, and in verses 63 through 65, we read, if you'll look there, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh, and by flesh he means our fallen human nature, is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my father. But not only once, not only twice, a third time in the sixth chapter of John's gospel, the Lord speaks of this call or this drawing. And so in this chapter, in verses 37 uh, through 40 of John 6, the Lord says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will in no wise, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so he says there are a people that have been given to him by the Father, and they will infallibly know him. They will infallibly come to him. They will infallibly be drawn to him. It is something that is irrevocable. Now, this word that is used for draw in John 6.44 is used several times in John, underscoring that it is an effectual call or drawing. It's used of Simon when he drew his sword. It's used of the net that is filled with fish, which was drawn. In places, it actually could be translated drag. Now, when God deals with rational beings, He sweetly draws us, but the point is, it is something that is absolutely efficacious. It is absolutely powerful, and it is irresistible. So, that's the backdrop to what the Apostle Paul says about calling. He is simply reflecting what the Lord Jesus Christ taught and what he himself experienced on the Damascus Road himself. So what is this calling? Well, first, it's necessary for us to distinguish the general from the effectual call. And it's important that we get this well into our minds. Two young people come into this service. Let's say that those two young people are identical twins. They have the same father, the same mother, uh, they have the same background, they have the same likes, the same differences, the same hobbies, the same classes, they enjoy one another, they're the best of friends, perhaps both of them have sensitive natures, and they come into the service and the gospel is preached. One of those twins goes out broken, convicted, and with joy and a newfound faith in Jesus Christ. The other goes out, and he could have cared less what the preacher had to say. He had no understanding of the gospel that was proclaimed. He didn't care anything about the word that was read or that was preached. One leaves saved, the other leaves lost. Now why? Well, it had nothing to do with the person himself, that is to say, Uh, identical twins, same background, same interests. It was not the content of the preaching. They both heard the same content. It was not that there was a different gospel for one than for the other. It was the same gospel message that was proclaimed to both. The difference is in the efficacy that attended the message, in the power that attended the message. The power attending The Word was the difference. In one, it was God's sovereign will to draw that young man to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the other, 
God withheld his sovereign power and attendance from his word, and that young man is fully responsible for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. He is responsible, but he is not able, as we unpacked this morning. That, then, is the difference between the general and the effectual call. When I first came to Lakeland, when Vicki and Evan and I came, uh, I believe it was Ronnie Boutwell who said to me that Lakeland, Florida is the lightning capital of the world. And so we had our first summer here, and we found that it certainly was true. You could see these great streaks of lightning through the sky that would brighten everything around you for a moment and then vanish. But then also there was the lightning that struck the oak tree. Now the general call is the gospel that is proclaimed that for a moment lightens everything around it, but then vanishes. The effectual call is the call that strikes its object. I remember reading somewhere in Spurgeon, and I know nothing about chickens, so somebody's going to have to help me with this. But I remember his saying that, and of course he grew up in the country, maybe he would know, or maybe British chickens are different than American chickens, I'm not sure, but that um, the hen had a common cluck around the barnyard, but that when she wanted to call her chicks, she had a special cluck, an effectual cluck, (laughs) and the chicks came. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the difference between a general and an effectual call. Our first life in ministry was in a little town in North Georgia, and uh, the whistle would blow very early in the morning so that the workers would, uh, would get up and would go to work in the granite mines. Now, I didn't work in the granite mines. I had a different calling. And so when I would hear it, sometimes I would get on up. Sometimes maybe I'd been out the night before and I needed to stay a little longer. It was, to me, a general call. I heard the whistle blowing. But when Vicki said, come to breakfast, that was an effectual call. (laughs) In Matthew 22, you will recall how the king beckoned various ones to come to his son's wedding and to partake in the wedding feast. And you will remember how one after another rejected, then he sent into the highways and byways, and they brought others in to participate in the wedding feast. There was one who did not have the wedding garment, and you know the the parable. But he ends the parable by saying, many are called, few are chosen. Now, what did Jesus mean? He's using there the word called in that general sense. Many were called. The the message went out to many. Many heard the message, but only a few responded. That's the difference between the general and the special or effectual or irresistible call. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when we turn, for example, to another one of Paul's epistles, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we read in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Timothy 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God 
who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see, he references calling and the power behind that calling that is anchored in the eternal electing decree of God. Or if we turn to another one of Paul's epistles, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we see the Apostle Paul saying, beginning about the middle of verse 13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. So he speaks of the effectual call. In this call that is effectual, the lightning that strikes its object, the specific cluck of the hen, the call to breakfast, if you will, In that call that is irresistible and effectual, God the Father is its author, God the Son is the one to whom we are called, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who actually effects it. God the Father thought it, God the Son bought it, God the Spirit brought it, the devil fought it, but thank God I got it. So this is what we mean by the effectual call. Now, as we add a little bit more to this footnote to these verses we've been looking at, I think we need to ask something else. If that is the effectual call, how does it work? How does it function? What does God do in order to bring it about? Or we could put it this way, what are the constituent parts of God's effectual call? That would take us to many a verse tonight, and so allow me to summarize by using that greatest of summaries, our own confessional documents. In question and answer 31 of our Westminster Shorter Catechism, we read, what is effectual calling? The answer, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Now that is a summary of what the Bible teaches about calling, and that's really what Paul is getting at in that one little word, call, that is used in verses 6 and 7 of Romans chapter 1. And so there are three constituent parts. Did you hear it? First, he convinces us of our sin and misery. Secondly, He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And thirdly, He renews our wills, thus persuading us and enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ that has been preached, freely offered in the gospel. Now let's think through these for a moment. The first constituent part of calling, effectual calling, is that the Spirit of God convinces us sinners of our sin and misery. No sinner apart from that call, knows his sin and his misery. He doesn't see himself in relation to the holiness of God. He doesn't recognize himself to be a sinner, hell-deserving and without hope, apart from the gospel. And I ask you, 
Have you seen yourself to be a sinner justly deserving God's displeasure and without hope save in His sovereign mercy? Have you? If you have not, then may the Holy Spirit enable you to see it now. If you have, it is because the Holy Spirit has enabled you to see it. So dead we are in trespasses and sins we cannot see and we cannot hear. Without Christ, we will perish and we go on in our blindness, unconvinced of our sin and our misery. So how is a sinner convinced? Well, it's quite simple and yet profound. The Holy Spirit holds up our sin and we're startled to recognize our need. We see then the magnitude and the multitude of our sin against the infinite God. I remember a friend of mine said in a pastoral prayer, another pastor, in a pastoral prayer that he prayed one morning, uh, he prayed something to the effect that God would be merciful to us sinners, to this congregation full of sinners. One of his long-term members came up to him afterward, and she was deeply and greatly offended that the pastor had referred to the congregation as sinners. Now, I'm sure he's done it time and time again. I'm hoping that what the Lord was doing was beginning to show that woman that indeed she was a sinner. But it's possible for you to be under the preaching of the Word time after time after time, from infancy to adulthood, from the cradle to the grave, and yet if the Holy Spirit does not show you that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner, and not just generally speaking we're sinners, but I see in particular and in particular ways that I am a sinner. I can tell you how I am a rebel against the living and true God. Apart from this, we will be lost. We must see our need before we will respond to the gospel. And so the Spirit leads us to shut our mouths and to say nothing before this holy God except, Lord, without you I perish. The Spirit of God uses the perfection of the law of God in order to do this so that we may see that every commandment we have broken, at least within our hearts, if not through our actual transgressions. And because God is infinite in His justice, I am condemned under that law. Perhaps you've seen it when the cross is preached, for there you see justice in full poured out upon the Son of God as He took the chargeability of the sinner's sin. And there you see yourself to be a sinner in need of that Savior as a substitute for sinners. So contrary is this to flighty Christianity that sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder how much of what we think of as Christianity in this, in this country really is true Christianity. If there is not within our hearts something of what was known and seen and yes felt by Isaiah the prophet, when he saw the Lord high and exalted and lifted up, And it led him to say, I am unclean, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and yet with these eyes I have seen the Lord. If that does not characterize the professing Christian and the professing church, and oh my friends, we've never seen ourselves and our need of a Savior. We sang this morning that we had this, this hymn that was chosen, Amazing Grace. Now often we've sung that hymn, and yet have you noticed the words? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Grace teaches you to fear before it gives you relief. And so that's the first thing that we see that the Spirit of the Lord does. 
The second thing that he does is to enlighten the mind. Why does the mind need enlightening? Because we are darkened apart from this call of God the Father. How beautiful God is. How wondrous in all of his character. How glorious in all of his attributes. Are you not captivated with this grandeur and greatness of this God? How beautiful he is, infinitely good and desirable, and yet every sinner will reject him when he is proclaimed unless he is drawn from above because his mind is darkened to these realities. A man can remain in darkness with a Bible in his hand. Hephaestus and Agrippa heard the word of the Lord proclaimed. Light shone all around them, but light did not shine within them. In Matthew 16, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so God uses this instrument to enlighten the mind. The Spirit of God takes this instrument, and what is that instrument? It is His Word. His Word read, and especially, our catechism says, especially the Word preached. He uses the Word read and the Word proclaimed. Should we not be horrified at the demise of preaching in our day when God the Spirit uses His Word in order to enlighten the mind? But not only does he enlighten the mind, but he also renews the will. He renews our wills. This this distinguishes the special effectual call from the common operations of the Spirit of God. Through the common operations of the Spirit of God, a man may be touched in various ways, but still not, not be effectually drawn. But conversion is not a partial work. It extends to every faculty of the soul, and it extends all the way to the will. Now, where we are in modern American Christianity, in large measure because of the Wesleys and because of Charles Finney in particular, is that people will tell you, yes, we're fallen, but, you know, the will's pretty good. The will is still in pretty good shape. And so we can proclaim the gospel And uh, the way it's viewed is this, God casts a vote, the devil casts a vote, you cast the deciding vote. But how unbiblical that is. No sinner's stubborn will is an obstacle to God, but every sinner has a stubborn, obstinate will. Our wills are not free. Our wills are bound in sin. That's what the Scriptures teach. And that's what the sinner does not like to hear. Who are you to tell me that my will is not free? Well, this is what God's Word says. You are bound. Now, Pastor McDonald and I use an illustration. I I actually read it um, when I was first becoming familiar with the Puritans as I was a teenager. And that's the old vulture illustration. We have the vulture here on the pulpit. And here we have corn on the cob and roast beef and mashed potatoes. And over here we have a dead body. We put it before the vulture. Does the vulture have a choice? Absolutely. The choice is placed before him. Just as when the gospel is preached, the choice is placed before the sinner. But I ask you, which will the vulture take? Will he take the roast beef, mashed potatoes, and corn? Will he? 
Why? He will choose the dead body. And every time that life and death is put before the sinner, he will choose death every time unless his will, his nature, his affections are changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Of course a sinner believes. Of course a sinner decides. That's not the issue. The issue is why. How? And the only answer to that is that God overcomes the resistance and He makes us willing. Now I have here my confession of faith, the Westminster Confession. By the way, you might be interested to know that this was published in 1869. It's an old Southern Presbyterian volume. You can actually see it's kind of falling apart. It says Knox Gelatin in there. Um, when Vicky and I married, this was the, uh, the directory of worship in the back, has the marriage service that was held by the minister. Held, this book was actually held, not that we married in 1869. <laughs> 38 years ago, this is the actual volume. So from time to time, for, um, for reasons of sentiment, I use this confession of faith. Chapter 10 is the chapter on effectual calling, and this is what it says in paragraph 1. All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them an heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by His almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace." In Ephesians chapter 1, look at that, verses 19 and 20. We'll actually read verse 18 in this prayer of thanksgiving for the church. In Ephesians 1, Paul speaks of having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So he's talking about enlightenment, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You hear the word calling? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. What is he saying to us? He is saying that calling that extends to you as a sinner, that calling is the exertion of the same power that was used by God to raise His Son from the dead. That's what he's saying in those verses. The power that was executed, exercised to raise Jesus Christ from the dead must be exercised to raise us from spiritual death. What else could, I ask you? 
Well, I believe in man's free will, some Christian says. Man's just crippled. No, you don't. No, you don't. Why do you get on your knees and pray that God converts sinners? Why do you get on your knees and pray, Lord, I pray that you will save Aunt Susie? It's because you can't do it. It's because you know Aunt Susie can't bring herself into a savable state. It's because you know that only God can. And so all Christians know deep within that only God can do this. So I ask you again, as I did this morning, would you, would we see conversions? Then on your knees, Christian, look to the Lord for it who only can do it. He only can change a sinner's heart on your knees. Now let's add one thing, a third thing. How does this relate to the gospel offer? You remember what it says. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So how does this effectual call relate to this free offer of the gospel? Well, the Lord lacks no power to save any, and of course there's a great deal of mystery here. But let me just say a few things. First, God does not have two wills. God is, we, the, we say he's simple. That is to say, there's unity of essence. Um, it appears to us sometimes as if God has two wills. The secret things belong to the Lord. Those things that are revealed belong to us. But ultimately, all of this is resolvable in the mind of God. But we can say some things. First, we do not know who is elect and who is not. We are commanded to preach the gospel, to proclaim the word of God, to tell out the truth. And the gospel is like a magnet. If you take a piece of paper and you put iron filings and wood chips together, and you put the magnet underneath, and you draw the magnet from the bottom of the paper, the iron filings are going to come to the magnet, and the wood is going to be left. Now, every illustration of divine things fails. The difference in this illustration is we're all wood chips, right? But you get the point. The gospel, nonetheless, draws out of this world those whom God intends to save. So the gospel is preached to all, but the Spirit of God applies it to His own. And then we can say this, every sinner is responsible to return to the God from whom he has departed, even though incapable. And so repentance is God's command. Repentance does not imply the ability of the sinner in and of himself to repent. Calling to faith does not imply that the sinner has the ability to believe. He doesn't. But it does say this, having departed from God, you are responsible, even though incapable, of returning. And so in the gospel offer, we are to say, God commands all men everywhere to repent. And then thirdly, God does not take sordid delight in the death of the wicked. And so his gospel proclamation is a bona fide proclamation. And then, I suppose we have to just come down to this. 
In God's mind, there are superior judgments that determine His motivations. And who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? This doctrine, this doctrine is one of our greatest and grandest encouragements to evangelism. If I did not believe in electing grace, the particular nature of the atonement, effectual calling, irresistible grace, if I did not believe these things, my friends, I wouldn't have a gospel to preach. But I can know this, that when I proclaim the word of God, his word will not return unto him void, but will accomplish the purpose to which he sent it. And what should encourage us in evangelism is the knowledge that he has a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth that he intends to save. So pray for your preachers, pray for the preaching, take those tracts, put them out there, speak to your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, spread the gospel, because God is going to use that gospel. And if there is one here tonight and you are a lost sinner, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a stranger to grace, may the Holy Spirit show you even now that you are hopeless without Him. That this work of mercy is needed in your life. And perhaps like the iron filings, even now, He's drawing you, drawing you irresistibly to Himself. And I say to you, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. May He convince you of your sin and misery. May He enlighten your mind in the knowledge of Christ. And may He renew your fallen will. And God's people said, Amen.